Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Martin Dugard, and he's just published a book. You can see this on YouTube or Rockfin. Title of the book is Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. And there's a Kindle audio book and hardcover of this. And his full his website is his full name, Martin Dugard. Last name is spelled D-U-G-A-R-D. And he is the New York Times bestselling author of several works of history. Another book in, in kind of similar terms to this one is Taking Paris. There's another one called Into Africa, The Epic Adventures of Stanley and Livingston. I've done a show on that. And also he has done the Killing series with Bill O'Reilly. And those have sold more than 10 million copies. So very successful. He's also a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. And he spends time coaching hospitals high school cross country and track near Southern California. And it's an avocation which he's indulged in for the last 20 years as documented in his essay to be a runner. And some of his book titles are The Murder of King Tut, The Last Voyage of Columbus, Farther Than Any Man, The Rise and Fall of Captain James Cook, Knockdown, and Surviving the Toughest Race on Earth. He's also lived on the island of Pulau Tiga, during the filming of Survivor's inaugural season, I think Survivor's on almost 30 seasons now or something crazy, Survivor's inaugural season to write the best-selling Survivor with mega producer Mark Burnett. But again, we're going to talk about this with fascinating book. I've done a lot of shows on World War II, so I'm kind of familiar with the history. But he does a great job of kind of taking you into the whole panoramic view of really what was happening in Europe and Russia and the UK and all the personalities involved. And you can see these personalities on, a, on his book cover. Again, the title of the book is Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. So Martin Dugard, welcome to the show. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So for people who may not be familiar with your name or this successful killing book series, can you kind of talk about your background? You have a very successful writing career and what led you up to putting together this book, Taking Berlin? I guess I'll go back. Uh, I'll go back to the start. <clears throat> you know, I was that, I was that guy who got out of college and got a boring corporate job. And I came home every day complaining about how much I hated my job. And my wife told me to do something about it. And I began writing, uh, I began, you know, just trying something that was kind of on a lark, began writing magazine articles on the side because I'd, I'd always loved to read and write. And I started, you know, kind of with local running and triathlon magazines. I worked my way up to the GQs and the Esquires and the Sports Illustrateds. And uh, at some point something had to, had to give. I was doing the corporate world and uh, writing at the same time. And then I was given a chance to travel to Madagascar to, to cover this uh, two-week adventure race. And I got back and uh, my boss fired me on the spot, <laughs> which which is the best thing ever. And uh, I came home and I told my wife that uh, I wanted to give writing a try. You know, it was a full-time gig and she gave me the best advice ever. She goes, you know, I support you, but if you're going to do this, you're all in. I don't want to see you reading the what ads. I don't want to see you, you know, look at other career paths. If you're going to do this, you've got to make it happen. And so, you know, that was February 24th, 1994. And I've been doing this ever since. Um, I moved, you know, as my kids got older, it, it wasn't realistic to to travel as much as I needed to, to make a career as a, as a freelance writer. So uh, that's when I entered the book world. And, um, and it just, you know, I, I kind of transitioned away from sports and began writing about history. When well, the first one was my book about Captain Cook. And um, it's been history ever since. I've, I've done a couple, like I covered the Tour de France for about 10 years, but pretty much everything's history. 
And I think one of my trademarks is that uh, just the full immersion into the research. Uh, you know, I was traveling to lo the locations, you know, walking the footsteps of the, of the, you know, the individuals I'm portraying in the book. And, you know, along the way, it just, uh, it's just become, I think the research gets better with every book. The, the writing gets a little bit tighter. And, you know, after doing 12 killing books with, with Bill O'Reilly for the killing series, which, um, which has actually sold 20 million copies now, it's, oh, it's wow. done tremendously well. It's the biggest nonfiction uh a series in the history of publishing so it's um oh, it's done really well really amazing yeah thanks no it, it was just one of those things but um you know I, after 12 books i kind of wanted to go back to hearing my own voice in the books and so i you know i did taking paris and when i got to the end of taking paris which ends august 26 1944 with with uh, the, the allies liberating paris i kind of felt like the story there was more to say and I needed, you know, the war wasn't over yet. So um, that led to taking Berlin. And so it kind of picks up where, where taking Paris leaves off. Right. So you start, I think the prologue is May 1544, UK. And you have these great details. Like I really enjoyed all the specifics of these personalities. But it starts with the King of England, Montgomery, Eisenhower, Churchill. All the big names are there at the beginning of this book for the invasion, right? Yeah, there was a, a big, um, it was a big unveiling of the D-Day plans, and it took place at uh, St. Paul's School in London. And uh, interesting story, you know, in the room they held, you know, they they'd evacuated the school, all the school children were sent to the countryside for the duration of the war, and uh, Montgomery took it over as his personal headquarters. And so he basically had every top British and American uh, admiral or general was in the room that day, along with, you know, Winston Churchill and, and the King of England. And, you know, George Patton makes this big dramatic entrance. And it, I really like that opening just because it, it gives me a chance to kind of reveal all, almost all the characters in one fell swoop. But also, um, I just I just like, you know, the research aspect of that, you know, going to St. Paul's, which still is, it's a hotel now in London. And the room where they actually had that, that meeting uh, does not exist. It was destroyed by a, a Nazi bomb later in the war. Uh, which is too bad because I really wanted to be able to go into the room and see it. But at least it was nice to go, you know, visit the hotel and get, get the lay of the land and, and, you know, kind of smell the air, so to speak. And you did that on mainland too, on the continent, kind of seeing the sites that you portray in the book, correct? Yeah, my process is pretty simple. I'll, I'll research uh, a chapter. I'll even write the chapter ahead of time before the travels. And, so when I finally get to, you know, for instance, when I went to Arnhem, which is where the, you know, I actually didn't go to Arnhem, I went, went to Nijmegen, which is kind of the bridge too far. Uh, if anybody saw the movie back then, it's it's that market garden uh, operation. And um, so I knew, you know, so that way I know what I'm looking for. I know what I need to see. And uh, for instance, with that one, when I went to Nijmegen, uh, there's this moment in the book where General James Gavin, the 37-year-old two-star parachute general, um, you know, asks his men to to paddle across the Wall River in, into the, the teeth of some really thick enemy resistance. You know, 26 boats set out, you know, half, half of them are, you know, blown out of the water. Um, and actually, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to go to that spot just to be able to retrace their footsteps. You know, I knew that they carried the boats up and over a, a thick berm before they, they walked down to the water. And then I, you know, so I did that. I walked out of the water, you know, I want to be able to see the water, see how fast it is, what, you know, what color it is, what does, 
what does it feel like to stand there? Is it sandy or is it grassy? All, you know, all those little details you can insert, insert into the book. Um, and it's interesting because the place where they assemble the boats is now a CrossFit studio. So you always get, you kind of always get that surreal bl- blend of the old and the new when you visit these sites. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So there's still all those remnants of world war two are all kind of around that part of Western Europe too, right? Oh, it's everywhere. And you have to know where to look. I mean, when I did the book killing Patton about 10 years ago, it opens with this battle over the city of Metz and uh, this place called Fort Driant where the Nazis were, it was actually almost subterranean and the Nazis were able to, you know, attack without, they were within this fortress and I wanted to find the fortress, but it's not on any map. But I kind of knew where the location would be. It was, you know, kind of the same thing as going to to Nijmegen. And I, and I went to this uh, this place. I, I drove around. I had to trespass a little bit, and I, I found it. It's right now. It's it's in the middle of a thick woods, and I actually went into this this place. I could see the old gun emplacements. I climbed on the roof of it, and uh, it was interesting because I came back and I told a friend of mine who's a, a patent authority. That I'd found Fort Driant and I, you know, I'd done all this stuff. He said, "Oh, who is your guide?" I said, "I didn't have any guide. Um, I did it all by myself. I found it. I was so proud of myself." And he said, uh, "You know, there's unexploded ordnance all over that thing. So <laughs> who knows what what could have happened?" But I came out okay. That's good. I think they're still fight finding unexploded ordnance all over the place, all over there. There's just like the, all the remnants of the war. But you don't just kind of talk about the perspective of the Allies too. You also involve Rommel and Hitler. Can you talk about the kind of Axis viewpoint of this invasion? Yeah, you know, it's it's important to to balance the story. You know, there's always a good guy and a bad guy, and then you have Rommel, who's somewhere in between, who is one of these guys who, you know, was actually encouraging Hitler to sue for peace, and he was, you know. You know, we I, I'm, not, I'm reluctant to use the term good Nazi, but at the same time, he was um, he was having a crisis of confidence about the way the war was going, what it was going to mean for the future of Germany. So I wanted to insert that into the narrative. And once again, it's a matter of doing the research, reading the journals, um, you know, traveling to the to the town where Rommel lived at the time. He was convalescing from an injury. Um, you know, in the case of Hitler going to you know, going to Berlin and walking the streets and, and getting a feel for what the city was like during the war, you know, all of those things. But I kind of, it, it's like when you write about Hitler, it, it, there's like kind of a yuck factor to it because he, he, there's so much evil surrounding him. And you have to kind of try to get into his head. And, you know, sometimes with a character, when you, when you like with, you know, Patton's easy, you know, Patton's, you know, he's very mercurial. So he's audacious, but he's also moody and, contemplative it's easy to kind of sympathize with him and read his journals and kind of really get inside his personality but hitler is so dark that you you can only go so far where you know because then all of a sudden you let that person kind of live in your brain for a little bit and as you're writing about them then you have to try to let them go but it's hard to explain but when you write about these people you get to know them uh, as if they were a close friend. I mean, because you know their every action, you know their, you've read their journals, you know their innermost thoughts, and you know if if some of these people stepped in my office when I was writing, I wouldn't even be surprised at all, even though everyone's dead, just because I know them that well. So, like I'm saying, which is why I'm reluctant to to let Hitler get too much of a toehold in my head when I write. Even but even though I have to go there a little bit just to get the job done. 
Yeah, like a real monster, just like holding out and fighting to the end, no suit for peace, whereas a lot of other people would have been willing to do that, including Rommel, right? He kind of saw that the writing was on the wall. Yeah, you know, when Rommel got hurt, he was he was shot by a, a, a Canadian, uh, Canadian uh, Spitfire. You know, he, a 20 millimeter cannon just blew his, his chauffeur vehicle off the road. Um, he would have been wise just to stay in France, which is where it happened, because any of the uh, the allies would have captured him, but at least he would have had a chance to to recover and live. But once he went back to Germany, you know, we, we kind of set it up in the book, uh, a spiral happens as he, as he and Hitler kind of have a showdown over the future of the war. And his son, Manfred, which who I found to be a very sweet character as I researched the thing, him and Rommel had these long discussions about you know, what it means to be at war. You know, Manfred was only 15. You know, he was, he was, he had just been conscripted in the army and he and, and Rommel were having these long discussions about, you know, Germany's fate and what it is, what it is to be at war, what it, what the post-war world is going to look like, which I found very profound. And that was actually a discussion among everybody, right? So everybody in this huge event knew that there was something happening now, but there was going to be something totally different once the war ended, right? So everybody had that on their mind, right? Yeah, so the war, you know, began, you know, September 1st, 1939 with the invasion, the German invasion of Poland, but it really, really began in May 1940 when the Germans went on the offensive again and invaded uh, invaded France, you know, the British declared war, and that was kind of the start of it. But from that period, you know, May 10th, 1940, all the way up till D-Day, you know, which is four years later, the big focus had been gaining a toehold in Europe, getting getting a large Allied force onto the European continent. You know, we had people in Italy, you know, but it, it really wasn't quite the same because there was still a long way to go to to get to Germany. But so the the D-Day invasion was really super important as far as just getting people onto the continent. But once we did that, once we had that toehold, and once we were starting to advance through the Low Countries, and we we retook Paris, all of a sudden the focus shifted to two things first of all taking you know fighting japan because that was the thing people were starting to already make plans about how to get all the allied troops over to japan for that battle but also what the what the shape of the post-war world is gonna was gonna look like you know all of a sudden you had the russians uh, they had been you know of course invaded by the germans they had fought back pushed the germans back they were also racing to berlin from the east and they did you know the russians and and churchill had had discussions about you know, which countries were going to be allowed to be communist at the end of the war. You know, they're kind of carving up Europe. Um, it, it was it was really just one of those things that um, it, it just kind of took shape just the, during those last nine months of the war. But what's interesting about it is pretty much everything that's, that's happened in the world since, since 1945 to today was kind of set up in those last nine months of the war. You, you know, you have the Soviet empire, you have even the stuff going on in Ukraine right now is, is straight out of Joseph Stalin's playbook. And so, um, you know, and, and, and I, I even make the case that modern feminism got uh, got its start during World War II and especially that this last year of the war. And, and in the book, we have a character, Martha Gellhorn, who was Ernest Hemingway's third wife, but a really fascinating character in her own right. And um, in her independence and her way of, you know, getting around the war zone without journalistic credentials, just, you know, surviving on her wits, um, it's such a great example of a strong, independent woman. Right. So you have that kind of female, but there also is this whole pr- the the uh, 
Bagration, Operation Bagration, and Stalin moving. So they're in communication, right? Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt. Can you kind of talk about kind of the rivalries among the politicians yeah. and the generals? It was kind of weird. You know, so if we could you know, focus first on the, you know, you mentioned Operation Bagration, the D-Day landings, you know, the Norman, you know, the invasion of Normandy by the Allies on June 6, 1944, was an operation on a massive scale. You know, just one of the most epic things that had ever taken place in the history of warfare, particularly the naval portion of the invasion. Having said that, Operation Bagration, which this, which was the Soviet response to to D-Day invasion, which was basically them saying, okay, you're going to attack from the west. Now we're going to do our part and attack Berlin from the east. And Operation Bagration was, it dwarfed D-Day in, in scope. And we, we hear very little about it in the west, but Operation Bagration was one of the most colossal, colossal massive, I mean, it was just in terms of men and material in the in the length of the front, it was just on a phenomenal scale. And and after that took place, um, it, it, that, that really kind of began the dash to, to Berlin and everyone wanted to knock off Hitler. But then that's where the geopolitics came into view. You had, you know, Stalin was very cryptic. He was, you know, he whenever they, they had a meeting together, like when they were at Yalta, it was, you know, it was Stalin, Churchill and, and Roosevelt. You know, he had every room you know, which it was, it took place in Russia. So the Soviet Union, so basically he had every room bugged. So he knew everything that was going on in all the conversations with his allies. You know, Churchill knew that Britain was on the way out because um, Berlin, uh, because Great Britain was, they were just impoverished. They were losing all their colonies. Uh, they were not going to be a, a post-war global player, even though Churchill was trying very hard to make sure that, that they still were relevant. And then you had uh, Roosevelt who had, fantastic political instincts, but for some reason he totally trusted Stalin at a time when Stalin was the last person in the world he should have trusted. So uh, a lot going on there. And that was one set of relationships. The other set of relationships, of course, with the generals, uh, in particular, the the battle between uh, Patton and Montgomery, which I found fascinating because, you know, Montgomery is this this uptight, uh, bird-like, very methodical individual and then you have Patton who's you know all passion and romance and you know very aggressive all blood and guts and they could not have been more opposite in their styles of leadership but actually the two men were very very similar which I think kind of led to some of the the, you know how it is when people are a little bit too close in 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 personality that's that's where you kind of get those uh the the clash of a will so to speak right but they all wanted credit to it in right. Patton was always chomping at the bit, and Montgomery had his own. And uh, Eisenhower was the supreme Allied commander, right? So right. He's overlooking all these characters and working with Churchill. But can you kind of talk about the march from uh, from D Day, the Omaha beaches? Oh, sure. Kind of through Paris well, up to kind of the Rhine. Yeah, kind of. You know, going back to what you said, if you look at all the three characters, you know. Um, Eisenhower was the man in charge, but he was, you know, he, he was like the store manager, you know, <laughs> he was, he was in charge. He was the politician. He made, made sure everybody got to do their part. But then you, you know, with, with, the, especially with Patton and Montgomery, you had two men who had trained their whole lives to, to be military leaders. And they both knew that there was never going to be another opportunity in their lifetime as to, wage war on this epic scale and to direct men. And 
and frankly, to get the glory for the successful things like, you know, like taking the city of Berlin, you know, kept in, in a, putting an end to Hitler's reign. So you look at a map, you know, from D-Day onward. So Montgomery stayed to the north. He went, um, you know, north uh, up through France into uh, Belgium and Holland. And that was kind of his part. And he was planning on going to Berlin from that route. Patton was further to the south. So Patton from Normandy um, kind of stayed in the southern part of France. Kind of, And he was the one who directed the 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 path towards Paris. He, he actually wanted to bypass Paris because once you get into Paris, you have this moral obligation to, you know, feed and uh, use, use oil for heating for all the local population, and which would have been a terrible drain on U.S. military resources. But uh, in in the end, he decided that was the right thing to do. So, so you have Montgomery in the north, you have Patton in the south, and you know then Eisenhower had to manage these two people. Patton wanted more and more gas, he wanted more and more ammunition because he just wanted to go, go, go. Whereas Montgomery wanted everything to be given to him because he thought he was the one who should lead the, the path into Berlin, particularly because he was British and the British had suffered so much in the war before the Americans had even come to take part. It was almost two years of war before before the Americans were even on the stage. So a lot going on there. And in the end, and this is, this is the frustrating thing is, you know, because as the story unfolds, you kind of think that, one of them is going to win and you forget about the Soviets on the East doing the exact same thing. And they're just as eager to be the first people under Berlin. And then that sets up all the conflict that comes when Eisenhower is forced to stop um, the Americans and stop the British and allow the Russians to go in and take the city. Um, if only for the sake of politics and, and in that way, it, it did help shape the post-war world and the, and the, the advance of communism. Right. I mean, he, he, uh, Germany was split. There's East Germany now under the control of the Russians. I mean, it really is incredible. But a lot of there was intense fighting on the Western Front, but the Eastern Front was ferocious, too. Right. I mean, it was like, yeah, you got to remember, it, it, it all went back to when the, the Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union and they were trying to, you know, they're trying to go to Moscow and you know, do what Napoleon couldn't do and capture Moscow and take control of the Soviet Union. And of course, they were they were halted. They were pushed back by the Soviets after some bitter fighting. And you know, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, they were rapacious. You know, they 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 killed everybody in sight. They they you know raped women. They did horrible things to and the prisoners of war. It was just it was just brutal, scorched earth battle. And it was just one of those things where. The, the Nazi army was seen as being so great that it was like there's nothing that could stop them. So they just took great liberties. Well, when the Soviets pushed back and it was their turn to be in charge, they proved to be even more ruthless than than the Nazi Nazi Germany. And 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 the way and their revenge on the Germans was just horrific in the way that they the the, the things they did to the German people, the the way they just you know, you know, raped and pillaged and looted. It was just, just the, it was almost like a, a warfare going back to the Celtic tribes or the Germanic tribes. You know, in 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 where just where, if if you survived, it was only out of sheer luck because everybody everybody was dead, everybody was killed. It was terrible. Yeah, and, and then the Eastern Front, like the whole nation states lines national lines were totally changed germany's lines whereas on the west it seemed to be more stagnant but all the land changed poland grew 
I mean, even they're still kind of issues today, just like you said, they're still kind of fighting about the issues and the lines that were drawn post World War II. But yeah, so that that was some of the most brutal fighting, the, the revenge. And even Bagration, you mentioned Bagration was the guy who resisted Napoleon. So yeah. World War II was also seen as like another repeat of that invasion, right? Napoleon's march on Moscow. You know, it's interesting. I went part of my research, it's not there's nothing about it in the book, but um, went to Budapest and they have a great military museum there. And part of the museum is dedicated to the the men of Hungary, the men from their army who were conquered, who basically you know the Germany had had control when the Soviets came in, all the all the men that had fought on the on the Nazi side were taken prisoner and they just disappeared. And that's what happened to a lot of the German prisoners too. And even there's there's talk about you know allied prisoners who fought on the same side as the Soviets. They would just take they all went into the Soviet gulags. They they disappeared into Siberia and they never came back, even though they were um you know, but when the war ended they should have been released, but those the Soviets just made sure that it was like they followed the same scorched earth, earth policy with everybody. Right. Just a massive um, move of men and material and things like that all the way to Berlin. I mean, can you talk about the decision making on of the allies and what led to allowing this? I mean, it, it was a big idea for kind of the UK and the, the US to allow Stalin into Berlin, right? Yeah, you know what happened when they when they sat down to at, at Yalta, they they decided what, you know where the what the post-war shape of the world would look like, and wh what would be what part of Germany would be controlled by America, what what part of Germany would be controlled by by Great Britain, what part would be controlled by the Soviet Union, and at some point um, Eisenhower realized that it would probably cost about a hundred thousand Allied lives to to fight their way into Berlin. Um, but knowing that at the end of the war, per that treaty, they had they all had to pull back out and go back to their own zones of occupation. So the order came down from, from Eisenhower, um, I think it was March, um, March 1945, basically telling Patton and telling Montgomery, you know, sit tight, you're not going to go any further. And, you know, Patton was the, so, you know, so we let the Soviets waltz, waltz into Berlin. We were we were going to do this mass, massive parachute drop on Berlin. It was it was going to be fantastic. It was going to be the last great parachute drop in history. And James, General James Gavin was going to lead it. You know, that got canceled. And so we allowed the Soviets to go in. And Pat was the only one who said, you know, the, the, the Soviets aren't going to back out at the end of the war. They're going to keep, they're going to take as much as they can. So Patton did not stop. He kept going as far as he could. He went into Czechoslovakia before he was, you know, told quite firmly by Eisenhower to to stand down and, and not fight anymore. Um, and, you know, like I said, Patton was ready to go to war with the Soviets right there. And that would have, well, that would have been a great book. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it would have been interesting. I'd read, I'd read uh, that book. <laughs> I think he was really was a, one of the arch or primary people saying that, that they were going to be the next danger, right? Like we were going to go right to war with them. Is that correct? Can you say something? Yeah, Patton was in favor of taking all those Nazi troops and those Nazi generals who had proven so efficient at waging war and then basically letting them loose on the Soviets and we would fight right alongside them. And, um, you know, all in all, not 
you know, obviously a controversial idea, but not entirely a bad idea, given what has happened since. Right. The Cold War and all, all the responses on that. And can you kind of talk about the decision? Some people may not have seen that movie, A Bridge Too Far, but there was a pretty bold decision to paratroop, uh, a lot of troops past German lines into, uh, you mentioned Nijmegen and some of these other places. Can you talk about Operation Market Garden and what was successful sure. and what wasn't? Operation Market Garden was, um, it was conceived by Montgomery. And the, the whole idea was that, again, remember Montgomery's in the north. He's up in, up in Belgium and Holland. His whole idea was to make use of uh, the massive paratroop divisions that the U.S. and the British had. And the road from the Belgian border into Germany is a line, it's just a basically a, a, a narrow country road. And because of that, you know, it's a very low-lying area, there are a series of bridges from, you know, the, in the 65 miles between the Belgian border and the German border. And his plan was to par drop paratroopers in. They were going to they were taking to take control of those bridges, and then then the British army would follow the road, kind of connect the dots, you know, bridge to bridge to bridge, and um, you know, rescue the paratroopers, and take control of the land. And then basically, at the end of it, he would cross that he would cross that final bridge into Germany, and we would have a toehold in Germany and. The, th the thinking there was that the Germans would completely capitulate, which we later found out with the Battle of the Bulge was never going to happen. Um, but it, it, what it came out to be, they had all these bridges, but it turns out to be exactly what the movie was called, A Bridge Too Far. Now, there was, there was just, they got all the way to Nijmegen, and time, 10 miles after that was was the city of Arnhem with the, the final bridge into Germany. And when, every, when everybody got all the way to Nijmegen, there was just such stiff German resistance that, the 10,000 British British and Polish paratroopers who had jumped into Arnhem were almost completely slaughtered. They, by the end of, by the end of the battle, they were down to 2,500 men. So that's 7,500 men who perished and they, they weren't taken prisoner. They just found their way out. They floated down the river in the dead of night to get away. But it's one of those great battles that could have been averted because, and I learned in my research that um, the Dutch military academy was doing uh, a study on if, you know, what is the best way to get from Belgium to Holland through, I mean, Belgium to Germany, you know, through Holland. And they said, you know, the one road that you should not use is, is the one that Montgomery chose to use. And the thing is, Montgomery never consulted with the Dutch about how to do it. And it, it might, might have turned out quite differently if he had listened to him. Interesting. And I think you wrote that the Germans found somebody inadvertently took the market garden plan on one of their gliders, left it in there, and the Germans had it, so they knew where the exactly. plan was going to be, right? How was that play out? It was just one of those dumb things that happens in wartime. Somebody didn't think it would be a big deal to take the plans with, or maybe they forgot they had them, but when they're, when the person's glider crashed, the Germans found the plans, and they knew exactly what we are going to do and where we are going. So it, it's, the thing about it is, it, history sees Market Garden as a debacle of sorts, I mean, because it, it failed. But it wasn't a complete failure. It was just one of those battles that just wasn't executed or thought of properly. In other words, you know, it took a year to plan um, D-Day. Market Garden was planned in a week, and 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 it was it was just so hastily put together that it really didn't do all it was supposed to do. All right, and that's Gavin. One of the guys who led it is in between Stalin and Patton on your book cover, right? So he 
yeah. kind of earned some fame for his his heroics. Um, but then it was, yeah, they were thinking, I mean, you wrote in your book, they were thinking they were going to be, the war was going to be over by Christmas. They were hoping for a Christmas end. That did not turn out to be the case. Um, can you kind of talk about the Battle of the Bulge and kind of the resistance on the west side, the western front? Yeah, you know, again, we we kind of thought it was, you know, the time of year where everybody was going to be kind of shutting down. It was cold. It was really cold. It was It was a very hard winter. And, you know, everybody was thinking about, Christmas and getting home and you know the the Germans it looked like they were just going to roll over and you know Hitler had his own kind of crazy peace plan was that he was going to drive a wedge between Patton's people in the south and Montgomery's people in the north and he was going to drive it all the way to, to the sea all the way to um, Rotterdam and Antwerp and basically have this corridor right between the, the you know the Americans and the, and the British and once he maintain that then he was going to start he was going to ask for peace talks he was going to ask if there was a way that um you know, the whole thing could be resolved without hitler you know getting arrested or i don't, I don't know how he was, he was going to pull that one off but um but it was such a but it was a surprise attack and we weren't prepared for it at all we weren't you know we didn't have the right clothing we didn't we weren't alerted to it a lot of the the the, the area that that hitler through which Hitler chose to attack was very close to the area through which they attacked um, to open the war in May 1940. And we, even despite what had happened to the French, we still thought that that was someplace that they could never attack through. So we had all these units who'd been pulled off the line to rest and recover and retrain who were spending like basically a down period there. And all of a sudden um, these people or, you know, all of a sudden the German army just kind of thundering through in, in just, you know, an artillery barrage, and then the, the panzer tanks come through, infantry comes through, and for a while there, it was really looking like it was going to turn out badly. You know, a series of blunders by the Germans kind of, they kind of shot themselves in the foot, so to speak, but it was, which, which allowed us to win the battle, but, you know, it was Patton pivoting his third army to, you know, they were going to, there was, they were still supposed to be attacking into Germany. He turned them sharp left, went right into Bastogne, um, defeated the Germans, something that logistically was not supposed to be able to happen to take an entire army and move it so quickly. But within within two days, he pivoted his entire army to stop the Germans. So there's so much drama to the Battle of the Walls. It's one of those things that it's, and this, this is why the book, I did the book a little bit differently. You, you look at Bagration, you look at D-Day, you look at Market Garden, you look at, Battle of the Bulge, all of those huge battles are books unto themselves. And instead of instead of writing just about the battles, I wrote about the battles, but I wrote but I write about them through the eyes of General James Gavin, you know, uh, George S. Patton, uh, even Winston Churchill from his point, and even Martha Gellhorn because she was on the front lines too. So if I think it helps to understand the the battles better. If you if, if it's more of a you are there like you're with these people you're in the thick of the fight you know what's going on and hopefully it keeps people turning the pages this is not a dry history book it's meant to be a very you know uh, exciting history book I, I think that history is as, is exciting as as any great piece of fiction and but again I'd rather people instead of you know just focusing on troop movements and uh, the scale of the armor attack or this and that that's all there but I want to, I want people to see it through the eyes of the people who are there I want them to to feel the bitter cold I want them to feel the 
the mud and the snow and um, and you know even you know the the whine of the bullets all those things go into you know making you feel like you're at, in the war zone yeah your description descriptive power great details it felt like a cinematic read like you were in some active kind of battle movie in a lot of ways so oh, i commend you. you for that uh, we're at the 36 minute mark martin do you have time for a few questions sure uh, one is do you know Patton? Patton, you wrote a book, Killing Patton. Was there some suspicious things around his final days? Like some people have said that that was an assassination because he was trouble. Um, there was a car crash and then he died in hospital. What are your what's your take or what are your thoughts on his untimely demise? I wouldn't be surprised if Patton was assassinated. The Soviets were well known to use vehicles. Um, you know the car. You know uh, a fake car crash is a is a means of murder because it looks much more normal than a shooting somebody in the head or poisoning somebody. But that's what happened to Patton. All of a sudden he was, he was actually supposed to go back to the United States. The war was over. He was supposed to go back the next day and uh, a car pulls it in a, a big military vehicle, pulls in the road and slams into his car. Um, his neck is snapped. He's taken to, he's taken to a local um, facility where he, he waits. His wife comes to, to see him. And it, it looks like he's, He's going to be paralyzed, but he's going to go home. And then, seriously, he dies in that 24 hours before he can leave Germany. And, um, you know, as an aside, we talked about the research. When I did Killing Patton, I went to the, the U.S. military base where he, where, which was where his hospital room was. And I went in to the, you know, I saw the room. It was kind of cool. I saw the facility. And it was great because I, I learned only learned later that that was the last day that that the Americans had control of that base as they'd had control since World War II. The next day it reverted over to, back to the Germans. So it was nice to be able to go to see the place where, where Patton actually took his last breath. Fascinating. Do you know any story about him and the Spear of Destiny? Have you ever heard the whole story of the Spear of Longinus and that Hitler wanted it? And Patton, did he? Did I, you know, know no, I, I mean, it's out there. The thing about it is when you research stuff i mean it, it's pretty specific to what what i'm writing about and some of the tangential stuff like you know hitler's belief in reincarnation that that plays a role but uh you know it's again it's not a biography of Patton. so uh the did stuff Patton that, think he was reincarnated i remember that he thought he was like a greek warrior in some past oh yeah uh, he, he thought he'd he'd had several lives he was he that's why you know uh when when he was in North Africa, you know, and it's the opening scene of the movie Patton where he goes to the, to the battlefield in Carthage and he says, you know, I've been here before. He truly believed that. Interesting. Fascinating. And then what are your thoughts on Hitler's final days in the bunker? Do you think he got out, faked, or committed suicide? Do you find that? No, uh, Eva Braun, uh, you know, Eva Braun got shot or she shot herself or Hitler took arsenic and then shot himself. He took his body up top. Um, they burned the body with the dental records to show it. I mean, everybody likes to believe that Hitler survived, but actually took a lot of gasoline to burn the body, which was the thing I most found most fascinating about it. And if you go to Germany now, the place where the bunker used to be, um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's right next to this lovely monument to the Holocaust, but it's, it's just basically a parking lot. You know, the Soviets leveled it during their occupation there. So you can go there. And, you know, you, you kind of hope you're going to see like some remnant of it, but really it's just, there's a sign that says this is where the bunker used to be located. And that's it. 
And it's, I think he died. That's kind of like a Viking's death, right? Don't the Viking bodies get burnt on some boat or something? So he kind of emulated Viking. You know why they, they burn the body? They, well, you know, Hitler took great uh, pains to paint, you know, the, the, you know, Nazi Germany as, as some great descendants of the Vikings, which was just, you know, complete malarkey. But um, the reason they burned his body wasn't because of a Viking death. They were afraid that if the Russians got his body, they would, they would make a show of it. They would mutilate the body. They would parade it through the streets. It would just, Hitler couldn't imagine that is his final end. So he would rather have his body burned so that it didn't fall into the wrong hands. Fascinating. Michael says that he read Patton's diary three times. Wow, yes. Yeah. Talk to each other. Um, great discussion. And thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, where's the best place for people to get Taking Berlin? I know there's a lot more. I think, you know, the bookstore is everywhere. Amazon is the easiest. You, you, you just one click, you know, shouldn't, you know, everybody, all the online bookstores, but Amazon is the one that, that has it, um, you know, Barnes and Noble. Um, every place but Costco. Uh, for some reason, Costco didn't pick it up <laughs> this time. But it did, Taking Paris did great at Costco, but uh, Berlin's not there right now. Too many big books at Christmas. So I feel like I saw one of your killing books at Costco recently too. So I don't know. Oh, they're there. They, killing books kind of get an end cap, which is, which is great. Um, and so I'm hoping for end caps with uh, <laughs> taking Berlin. So we'll see. Gotcha. And there is a Kindle and audiobook, so people can order the audiobook off of Amazon. Um, yeah. And where's the best place for you? I know you have a website. Can you mention your website? How can people contact you if they're interested? Sure. Let me go back real quick to the, the audiobook. Uh, the audiobook for people who read audiobooks or listen to audiobooks is great because the actor is a, who does, who reads the book is a Shakespearean actor. He was, he was actually a character in uh the Harry Potter movies. So he's got this great stage voice. So I, I, I really love that he's doing the reading. Um, is it Samuel wife, Rukin? Yeah. Very good. Very, very good. It's nice to, you know, when you, when you write your words, you want, I, when, when I write something, I actually print it out. I read it out loud to make sure it sounds good. But the way that I, when I read it in the way that he reads it are two different things. He makes it sound very poetic. Um, but my website is uh, martindugard.com, M-E-R-T-I-N-D-U-G-A-R-D. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at, at Martin J. Dugard, and I'm also on Facebook as author Martin Dugard. Gotcha. So there's many places you can reach out. This book oh, yeah. was just published, right, November 1st, 2022. Just, just came out a couple weeks ago, yeah. That's so awesome. and right now I'm working on Taking London, which is the third book in the series. We're going back to the Battle of Britain. Um, fun research on that. I, I just I was in London a few months ago and I got to actually fly in a Spitfire. So some of the most fun research I've ever had in my life. That was really cool. Yeah, well, that's cool, man. You're living it. So you've gone through all these sites so people can see the first place what he saw depicted in this book. Martin Dugard, thank you so much for your time. And the title of the book is Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich by Martin Dugard, just published November 2022. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Stay there. Stay there. All right.